Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Criminal Law and Procedure Practice Group, was recorded on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is a Courthouse Steps oral argument teleform on Lou versus Securities and Exchange Commission. My name is Michael Wallen, and I'm the Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. And today we are fortunate to have with us Todd Bronstein, who is General Counsel of International at Willis Towers and Watson. Todd attended the oral argument live yesterday morning. After our speaker gives his opening remarks, we will then go to an audience Q&A. Thank you for sharing with us today. Todd, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Micah, and thanks uh, to the Federal Society for inviting me to give this teleform. The Securities and Exchange Commission has had a rough run of it in recent years when litigating cases at the Supreme Court about its remedial authorities. In 2013, in Gabelli versus SEC, the court rejected the SEC's attempt in certain cases to toll the statute of limitations for seeking civil penalties. The commission lost that case nine to zero. Then in 2017, in Kokesh versus SEC, the court held that when the commission seeks disgorgement in federal court, it is subject to a five-year statute of limitations applicable to penalties. Once again, the commission lost that case nine to zero. And the Kokesh case fairly clearly uh, foreshadowed the next battle over the SEC's remedial authorities. Justice Sotomayor's opinion for the court in Kokesh included a footnote stating that uh, the court was expressing no opinion on whether courts have uh, actually have underlying authority to order disgorgement in SEC enforcement proceedings or whether uh, courts have properly applied disgorgement principles in SEC enforcement proceedings. And this footnote meant that a challenge to the SEC's authority to seek disgorgement in federal court was inevitable. And hence, uh, it was no surprise last fall when the court uh, granted cert on that very issue in Lou versus SEC. Uh, and as Mike mentioned, the court held oral arguments uh, in that case uh, just yesterday. And although the Kokesh opinion itself took no view on whether the SEC has the ability to seek disgorgement in federal court, several of the individual justices had expressed such a view during oral argument in Kokesh. Indeed, uh, no fewer than five of the justices asked counsel uh, in Kokesh uh, whether such authority existed and where it came from. And some of them um, were notably skeptical that the authority uh, existed. For instance, uh, Chief Justice Roberts commented that the SEC, quote, devised this remedy, dot, 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 without any support from Congress, close quote. Justice Gorsuch was even more skeptical. He observed of disgorgement that, quote, there's no statute governing it. We're just making it up, close quote. So coming into oral argument in the Liu case, given the, the recent history of, of lopsided losses and the skepticism of some of the justices in Kokesh, the deck did appear to be stacked against the SEC. But, but that was actually the, the surprising thing about yesterday's oral argument. If, if the questioning was any guide, many of the justices actually did seem to accept that there was a good statutory basis for disgorgement in federal court. Indeed, there even appeared to be something of a consensus, or something approaching a consensus among the justices, that the authority for disgorgement existed, and the only question was how to fashion that remedy appropriately. Before getting into that, let me discuss some of the background uh, to this case. Disgorgement is defined as a remedy in which the defendant is forced to give up ill-gotten gains when he you know, engages in some kind of wrongdoing that offends the rights of another. Disgorgement has been one of the SEC's most potent tools, uh, both in federal court and in um, the SEC's own administrative proceedings. For example, in fiscal year 2019, parties to commission enforcement proceedings, uh, both in federal court and administratively, ordered to pay $3.248 billion in disgorgement as compared to just $1.101 billion in civil penalties. 
But despite its widespread usage, there is no statute that expressly authorizes courts to order disgorgement in SEC enforcement actions in federal court, or rather no statute that authorizes it expressly in those terms. Disgorgement orders first appeared in SEC enforcement actions in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And that was a time when the only remedy the SEC had express authority to seek from the courts was an injunction. And although there wasn't an express basis for courts to order disgorgement, a number of courts ordered disgorgement anyway in what they called uh, an exercise of their inherent equity power to grant relief ancillary to injunctions. And that theory under which the early courts in the 60s and 70s ordered disgorgement obviously is an expansive reading of judicial power that has obviously fallen very much out of favor in American jurisprudence. And as a result, um, the SEC uh, certainly was not relying on that theory in the Lou case and in and other uh, lower court cases. Instead, the SEC pointed to um, some statutory language that was enacted in 2002 that gives them the power to seek in federal court, quote, any equitable relief that may be appropriate and necessary for the benefit of investors. And the SEC's argument, although this doesn't specifically mention disgorgement, their argument that it covers disgorgement goes something like this. For a period of decades, beginning again in the 60s and 70s, courts did order disgorgement in SEC judicial proceedings as an appropriate exercise of their equitable authority. Practice was, was very common and was affirmed by a large number of courts of appeals and, of course, was supported by the commission itself. And whether those decisions were rightly decided or wrongly decided, they form an important backdrop for the various statutes that Congress enacted in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s that laid out the SEC's enforcement or that defined the SEC's enforcement regime. And hence, according to the SEC, the authorization for, quote, any equitable relief uh, that was enacted in 2002 should be understood as including disgorgement. And in further support of that argument, you know, the commission noted that the Supreme Court itself has described disgorgement as an equitable remedy, and it pointed to examples of Congress um, classifying disgorgement as an equitable remedy in analogous statutes for the Commodities Future Trading Commission. The commission also, in, in its argument uh, in, in, in the Supreme Court, noted that there are other um, statutory provisions in the scheme governing the SEC that explicitly refer to judicial disgorgement. For example, Congress enacted provision that prohibited private attorney's fees awards from funds that were disgorged as a result of actions brought by the SEC in federal court. So a provision that, 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 that very clearly, explicitly presupposes that there is disgorgement that is available in federal court. And the SEC argues that in order to give effect to that language, the phrase any act has to be read to include disgorgement in federal court. And finally, the SEC pointed to history. It observed that historically, courts sitting in inequity had the ability to grant a remedy called an accounting, which required wrongdoers to surrender profits from, from their wrongs. Argued that disgorgement is, is simply the modern form of accounting. And as a result, when, when Congress used the phrase, quote, any equitable relief, it very plausibly could have been understood as authorizing disgorgement in federal court. The petitioner, uh, Mr. Liu, uh, attacked the SEC's reasoning by arguing, obviously, that, that disgorgement can't plausibly be, be derived from authorization to seek um, equitable relief. And his principal argument was a syllogism that relied heavily on the 2017 decision in Kokesh. First, the court held unanimously in Kokesh that the SEC's disgorgement remedy was a penalty. Second, equitable jurisdiction does not authorize penalties. You, you, you can't use equity to obtain penalties. And therefore, the phrase equitable relief can't be read as authorizing disgorgement. 
So regarding the first prong of the syllogism, Kokesh held, again, unanimously, that disgorgement in SEC actions bears all the hallmarks of a penalty. First, the SEC disgorgement is imposed as a consequence of violating a public law as opposed to a wrong against an individual. Second, the court observed in Kokesh that SEC disgorgement is punitive, designed uh, to deter. And third, SEC disgorgement is uh, not necessarily intended to compensate a victim for losses, but instead the, the, the funds that the SEC collects uh, frequently go, uh, go to the U.S. Treasury. So that was the basis on which the Kokesh court found that disgorgement is, is a penalty, and Lou argued that if there was a penalty there, it's a penalty here. Regarding the second prong of the syllogism, Lou relied on extensive authority that equity doesn't aid in the enforcement of penalties, but rather its goal is to provide a compensation or, or to restore the status quo. Even apart from, from the Kokesh decision, Lou argued that the phrase equitable relief can't encompass disgorgement and spent a lot of time kind of tracing the history of um, equity courts awarding um, accounting or disgorgement, saying that, um, that essentially whenever courts would do that, it would only do so in certain narrow contexts. For example, when there was a fiduciary relationship between the party that had been wronged and the party that had been ordered to disgorge. And so it said equitable relief uh, hasn't been understood historically to encompass quite the modern day SEC disgorgement. And Lou also argued um, strongly that removing the SEC's ability to obtain disgorgement in court would not have much of an impact uh, on the SEC's ability to regulate financial misconduct. He pointed out that the SEC can still obtain disgorgement in its administrative proceedings under, under an express grant of authorization, and that in judicial proceedings, even if it loses the ability to obtain disgorgement, can still obtain uh, civil penalties um, equal to the gross amount of a defendant's uh, pecuniary gain for, for certain categories of violations. So those were the arguments of, of the parties. And as I mentioned, um, at oral argument yesterday, there was really, really very little jousting um, over the SEC's core claim that the Congress's use of the phrase, quote, any equitable relief in 2002 created a disgorgement remedy in federal court. A lot of energy in the briefing on that issue, but, but actually very few questions from the justices attacking that premise. In fact, to the contrary, a number of justices asked counsel on both sides you know, how the court should fashion the disgorgement remedy under the assumption that it rejected Lou's argument that the remedy doesn't exist. Interestingly enough, one of those justices was Justice Gorsuch. As I mentioned before, he observed during the Kokesh argument that, quote, we're just making it up when it comes to the judicial disgorgement remedy. But three years later, having had the benefit of briefing on this subject, Justice Gorsuch asked several questions that, that indicated his interest in how to fashion a workable and principled disgorgement remedy. In particular, he asked several questions of both sides to test a possible rule that the SEC should, when it gets money in disgorgement actions, the rule should be that it should really seek to return it to investors where that's possible. But Justice Gorsuch never um, explicitly questioned the SEC's core claim that the disgorgement remedy does actually exist in the first place. Justice Alito took, took a similar approach to Justice Gorsuch. He asked, you know, wouldn't disgorgement qualify as a traditional form of, of equitable relief if it were limited to the net profits obtained by the wrongdoer and if every effort were made to return the money to the victims? And Justice Kavanaugh, in multiple questions of both parties, also indicated an interest in the answer to this question uh, and even referred to, to, quote, Justice Alito's two conditions, um, the net profits condition and the returning money to investors condition. And meanwhile, Justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Kagan all asked questions indicating some degree of sympathy with, with the SEC's core position 
um, that Congress had authorized disgorgement in federal court. In short, I mean, I think the questioning during oral argument was, was actually fairly lopsided in the sense of being more skeptical of Lou's arguments than the commission's arguments. And and really, with a number of questions, taking as their premise that there is a disgorgement remedy and, and assuming that is the case, what do we do with that? The government's lawyer had, had long stretches where you know, he spoke without interruption from the justices and um, he even ended his argument with time to spare because the justices had no further questions for him. So there's always the usual caveats about predicting uh, the outcome of cases uh, from, from oral arguments. Those caveats invoked uh, as usual. I do think it is safe to say that the Lou case will mark the end of the commission's run of unanimous losses at the court concerning its remedial powers. Seems like there'll be at least a few votes for its position. And I would go further and say it wouldn't surprise me at all if the commission pulled out a win in this case. It does seem likely that there will be uh, some language, if not uh, an express holding, saying that the court will expect uh, district courts uh, or, or instruct district courts to order the SEC to make best efforts or reasonable efforts to compensate victims, to allow uh, defendants to deduct reasonable expenses. But, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they do uh, uphold the commission's position on this and allow the, uh, them to continue seeking disgorgement in federal court. So with that background on the case and oral arguments, I'm, of course, happy to take any questions. Todd, while we're waiting for a question to come in, I, I had one question I wanted to ask you. If the court does say here that the SEC is lacking the authority to seek disgorgement, what is the actual practicable effect on their enforcement regime moving forward? It's a good question. I, I think that, that the SEC, uh, of course, will um, will retain its ability to, to seek disgorgement in administrative proceedings. Um, so that that won't change at all. Their ability to, to get some of the outsized judgments we've seen, um, at least in court, will, will be somewhat limited. They will, of course, be able to, to get penalties up to the gross pecuniary gain um, that the defendant got, but, but they won't be able to get as much as they had previously. And, and so there may actually be an incentive on the SEC's part uh, to shift more cases from court to administrative agencies. And we've seen that trend uh, very, very emphatically in recent years where the SEC is bringing more and more cases um, administratively. And to the extent that their ability to, to, to obtain disgorgement in federal court um, is, is limited or struck down, that trend will only accelerate further. I mean, in fact, this was a point that the government lawyer you know, made um, during oral argument yesterday. If we disallow the disgorgement remedy in federal court, that would give the SEC an incentive to bring more cases administratively where there are where the procedural protections are, for defendants are not quite the same, and that may not be necessarily w w what the court wants to do. So it'll have some effect, but the SEC still will have a very large range of tools at its disposal in pursuing its enforcement regime. All right. Thank you. And we, we have a question in the queue, so we'll move to that caller. Uh, yeah, just a quick question. You mentioned the SEC's argument and basically analogizing disgorgement to uh, you know equitable relief for accounting. And I'm curious if you could just elaborate a little bit on that, because not really directly seeing the relationship here, because, you know, an action for equitable accounting would require, you know, some sort of fiduciary relationship and the actual uh, recovering of profits would be based, you know, more or less on, on the breach of that relationship. Whereas disgorgement is more of just I'm being forced to hand over something because of, uh, you know, on, on a legal demand by uh, an authority. So if you could just elaborate a little bit on that, their argument, uh, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I think the point you raised was one that was emphasized uh, quite strongly by counsel for Lou, that historically, that's exactly what, what the accounting remedy was, that it involved fiduciaries, and that to take it and to transplant that to all those with under the SEC jurisdiction is an error. And I think essentially the courts in, in the 60s and 70s 
treated disgorgement as really part of its ancillary jurisdiction uh, in equity. Uh, they were allowed to issue injunctions and they said, well, you know, we can issue injunction. The injunction is a form of equitable relief and ancillary to that, we will also grant disgorgement. And so that was the theory. It's not a theory that the SEC is defending today or, or advancing today, but they are saying that it forms the background. And when Congress used the phrase equitable relief, that's what they were referring to. And, and they talk about um, they talk about some legislative history, including some committee reports, which is not going to necessarily influence uh, this particular court. But I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to say that that the phrase equitable relief doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean what it meant in 1800 or 1850, but it has to be understood as it was understood in 2002 in terms of the kinds of relief that courts were granting. That is how they presented the argument. I mean, interestingly, that claim that, you know, the equitable relief doesn't mean what it necessarily mean what it meant in 1800 or 1850. You know, at one point uh, when counsel for Lou made the argument, well, historically, dis- disgorgement required a fiduciary relationship. And, 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 and so there really isn't really much of an analogy there. Justice Alito asked a somewhat skeptical question saying, you know, is, is it right for us to, to presume that, that when they use this phrase equitable relief in 2002, they meant to incorporate every, every curlicue of traditional equitable jurisprudence? It was, a, it was an interesting turn of phrase, the word curlicue. And so I think that position at least found some sympathy with the justices, whether it's dispositive, who knows? But, but that was their argument. Todd, did you have any closing remarks for us today? No, I don't think so. I mean, it was a very interesting um, argument, certainly a lot different from what I, w- I was expecting, given, given the recent history and given um, what happened in, in Kokesh. And it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out in the opinion. All right. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, I'd like to thank our expert for the benefit of his valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.